Hello and welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor with me, your host, James Mitra. Here at JBM, we think one of the best things you can do for your career is to find a great mentor who you can learn from and be inspired by. So for those of you who are looking for this mentorship, we launched this podcast. In each episode, we'll be sharing career stories, advice and mentorship from some of the most inspiring people we know. And we hope that you can apply some of these learnings to your life and career. I'm always keen to get feedback, so if you have any thoughts once you've listened to this interview, just drop me a line at james at jbmc.co.uk. I have always found the world of politics intriguing, so I was especially excited when Sam Jamar, the former UK Minister for Science, Technology, Universities and Innovation, agreed to be on the 40 Minute Mentor. Sam was born in the UK, but raised in Ghana, before returning to study PPE at Oxford University, where he was elected the first black British president of the Oxford Union Society, one of the world's most prestigious debating societies. After starting out in investment banking at Goldman Sachs, Sam successfully transitioned into entrepreneurship, working in both fintech and then a logistics training business, which he scaled to 10 million turnover with 70 staff in just a four-year period. His endeavours saw him voted the CBI Entrepreneur of the Future in 2005. Following his entrepreneurial success, he was appointed as the Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, which was the start of an impressive and high-profile political career. In today's conversation... Sam shares a wealth of valuable insights from his incredible journey from a comprehensive school education to number 10 Downing Street. During our fascinating chat, we discuss how Sam's experience at Oxford University set him on the path for a career in business and politics, despite initially wanting to be a lawyer, what you need to know about working for a high profile person, and how to overcome the challenges of being in the public eye. Why working in politics is like being in a constant asteroid shower and the core skills you need to develop to survive and thrive in that kind of environment. Plus, we also get Sam's take on how his former colleagues are coping with the COVID-19 pandemic. I love chatting to Sam, who is a great guest. Really open and honest, he shared some fascinating insights into the inner workings of Parliament and what a career in government really entails. So, whether you're plotting to enter the world of politics yourself, or simply want to know how Sam came to be known as one of the most influential people in the country, I'm sure you'll gain a lot of insights from hearing his story. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the inspirational Sam Jimmar. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today on the 40 Minute Mentor. I'd like to kick this off as I always do. Can you give us a 30 second overview of your CV, if that's okay? Well, I'll try. So um, (laughs) it's 10 years in politics, 10 years in business. Born in the UK, brought up in Ghana, came back to the UK when I was 17 and I've lived here ever since. Amazing. That is definitely the most succinct we've ever had. <laughs> well, we, we're going to sort of unpack all of, the, all of that over the course of this conversation. But before we talk about your, your career in government, which is, I think, a lot of people are going to be fascinated in, I always like to find out a bit about one's upbringing. So what was it like? I know you, you mentioned you were born here, but what was it like growing up in Ghana? And what, how did you kind of adapt when you came back here? And what, what was the young Sam like? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Well, so I... We, my family, we moved to Ghana when I was six years old because my parents separated and 
my mother went uh, took us back to Ghana. I'm the eldest of three. And um, so what did my primary and the early part of my secondary school there. And um, it was Ghana in the 1980s. God, you're making me feel very old. <laughs> it was fun. It was um, a relatively secure upbringing. Uh, my mother was a nurse. She brought us up on her own and she was very determined that we had as normal an upbringing, even though our circumstance wasn't that normal. Mm. So I remember she would do things like take us out to restaurants and uh, just so that, you know, we knew how to order in a restaurant because we didn't really have very much. And um, she did her very best to make sure that we were well cared for and secure. And from my perspective, I had to grow up very quickly. Mm. I was the eldest. And um, so very early on, I used to help my mother with chores around the home. But most of my memories of that age, you said it was a young Sam, like, was very much to do with school. And um, right. I, was, I was a bit of a geek at school. And, <laughs> um, and um, I loved school. I had great friends at school. I enjoyed school and which was what defined my life. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting because you've obviously gone on to have a very varied career, that you, uh, incredibly high achieving. Did you know back then what you wanted to be? What were the early aspirations for for young Sam? Oh yeah, there've been a number of things. So, well, like any like any, I'd imagine young children, you go through different phases of your life. I remember when I was about twelve, I started reading all these Ken Follett novels and convinced myself for a while that I would quite like to be a spy in Afghanistan. <laughs> you know, to read. And, I think uh, we've all been there. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. So I went through that phase. But the the job I really wanted to do for, I'd say, the most consistent period of time when I was a growing up was to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a barrister. And um, the, uh, sometimes I think there is a part of me that's still the frustrated barrister. And um, I didn't read law in the end and didn't go into law after university. But I've always had that part of me that kind of likes disputation you know and um, arguments and speaking interesting i guess yeah. the, the politics allowed gave an outlet for that aspect of uh, my personality and that part of my brain but that was that was i'll probably say i went through lots of different phases but that was the one that sort of stuck with me for the longest yeah interesting. and i ended up doing everything but that <laughs> um, which is often the case i didn't become the professional cricketer rugby player that i thought I, I would be or hoped to be. I was never good enough and I was way too small. But uh, <laughs> Oh, I went through the sport then. Yes, yeah, I, yeah. I, I loved <laughs> athletics. And in my childhood, he said I collected, I had um, videos because we had v- VCR recorders then of I think every major athletics tournament from 1988 wow. to the mid-90s. So I had Olympics, I had world championships, I had major meets. There was some great athletes so that Carl Lewis, Linford Christie. I remember those times very well. It was an exciting period. <laughs> you kind of realise that that dream ain't going to happen when you are a five, four and a half. <laughs> yeah, sadly, I had a very similar realisation. Well, you said a self-proclaimed geek, but clearly very academically smart. And you went to Oxford. So, you know, very much the, the, the pinnacle in, uh, in terms of academic achievement in the UK. You were also the, the first black president 
president of the Oxford Union, uh, which is the world's oldest debating society. So clearly the outlet for debate and, and arguing, uh, you, you achieved that there. Can you tell our listeners a bit about sort of how that came about and just some of your highlights from that time in Oxford? How did that help shape, you know, the, the, the rest of your career? Oxford was a defining moment for me in terms of my life and career at so many levels. Um, most of I met and made lifelong friends at Oxford. I, um, my wife, I first met at Oxford. It took me 20 years to ask her out, but that's where <laughs> we, we, we first Amazing. met. Amazing. And um, as you said, I got into uh, debating. I'd never debated before I arrived at Oxford and took it up there and learned how to debate. I became you know, active in the debating society and stood for election. And these were very seriously contested elections as most people who were at Oxford and probably were annoyed by these elections would, te- would, would testify to me. You had a membership of about 10,000 across the university. So you had to work quite hard to get elected to these positions. And I'd arrived there from a state school and um, I have my history teacher, Mr. Greenhouse, uh, to thank. You know, I said to him in the sixth form that I wanted to apply to Oxford. So I wasn't just geeky, I was quite pushy. And um, <laughs> he offered to give me extra lessons. And I think his effort in just giving me extra lessons and tutoring me for the exam made a huge difference. So I arrived there and um, I just thought, yes, I like the debating. And on the walls of the debating society, they had um, people ex-presidents who had been debaters and you had people like Boris Johnson who had been ex-president, William Hague, Michael Foote, um, Benazia Bhutto, and all these people had been presidents of it. And they just didn't have debates. They had hosted speaker meetings. So they had, you know, OJ spoke there for the first, his first public appearance after his trial was at the Oxford Union, you know, um, the Queen had been there. So for me, it's like, well, I want to be part of this. And yeah. that's why I took debating so seriously and took the politics so seriously at the time. But I think it was an environment when, when I arrived at Oxford, people say, did you feel different? You know, you come from a slightly sort of unusual background at the time. But yes, I did at some level. But another level, you kind of found, as you said, if you're a geek and I was really into current affairs and nobody in my family was into current affairs and I was the bore at home. And <laughs> I got into this environment where there were people who could out-geek me on current affairs. So at that level, I felt very, very much at home. Yeah, um, you're in your although, element. Yeah, in, in other areas, is quite a different environment. But I'd always learned to adapt and adjust. You know, I'd Grown up, you know, I was born here. As I said, I went to Ghana, grew up there, came over here, sixth form here, and completely new school. I'd adapted to that, and I got to Oxford in a slightly different. I'd learnt along the way how to adjust and adapt to new environments, mm-hmm. and um, that's what I did at Oxford. But it was a defining moment because of the friends I made. My confidence grew a lot through the debating society, I don't think I would have thought of a career in investment banking to start with had I not been at Oxford. And mm. frankly, it's, it's what a lot of people I knew were doing. So yeah, fair it enough. was an yeah. insight and 
I worked out that it was a quick way to pay some of those student debts. Yeah, yeah. no, it's and it, it's a common a common path, I guess, for, for many Oxbridge candidates. Before we come on to that, because I'm keen to understand a bit about that early career in banking, out of interest at the union, you mentioned some of the great people that came and spoke. Were there any people that came during your time there that really inspired you or left a lasting impression? Oh, well, it's, it's a very personal. I mean, it's for me, it's, um, I had... Um, James, because I was very much into international relations at the time, and I invited James Baker, who had been U.S. Secretary of State during the first Iraq war. And um, um, those were the days when we still had fax machines. So I received a fax, you know, asking whether I could meet Mr. Baker at the airport. So (laughs) I I faxed back saying yes, so um, hired a car and met the former U.S. Secretary of State at the airport. But it also asked if Douglas Hurd, who was then who had just been UK Foreign Secretary, could be invited. So I invited him. And lunch that day was me, Douglas Hurd, and James Baker talking about the first Iraq war and how they fought it, you know, why they didn't go as far as um getting rid of Saddam at that time. And Fascinating. You know, he, he gave me kind of the thought process that had gone into developing the policy. You know, which I still remember to this day, he said, if you go out for regime change, then you must be very ready to rebuild the nation. And they made a strategic decision that they weren't in it for nation building. They wanted to move Saddam out of Kuwait, which is what's uh, which yeah. is the invasion. And that exposure at the age of 1920, and then looking at the second Iraq war, but also Syria, with and those conversations have sort of stayed with me throughout so yeah. that was that was an a, an amazing and a very privileged experience to have at that age yeah i can imagine and do you think in in some ways those early experiences that exposure to those types of people it was always there to to move into politics further down the line because clearly that that inspired you i like political argument i like the political arena but i hadn't really decided whether i wanted to do politics um okay at all. And um, I, I think I saw, as I said, I think I saw myself doing that kind of thing within the context of the legal profession. Right. And um, I hadn't knew, I hadn't really thought about it. And no one in my family was interested. In, <laughs> in fact, it's positively discouraged <laughs> So um, from it. So I had no real reference points personally, except for the fact that, you know, I had this great exposure, but I think what it did and what you hope to get from an education apart from the curriculum and what the curriculum in a good syllabus gives you is um, widening your horizons, which for, you know, the, you know, having come over from Ghana and new to the UK at that age, it really widened my horizons a lot, but also confidence that although I felt I was an outsider, there was a sense in which it gave me confidence to interact with decision makers on the same level quite earlier on. And I think that's essential in terms of sort of your life and what kind of sort of toolkit you have to deal with it. Yeah, I I completely agree. So you you ended up deciding investment banking was the route. So tell us, uh, our listeners, a little bit about that experience, kind of what made you decide to go down that path? Was it purely just to pay off the loan? And, and how did you find that experience? Oh, yeah, I was also, I mean, I was, I was seduced by everything. I was, I, was, I was seduced by 
the level of exposure you get at a very early on, which they constantly told you about, the fact that you could be a first year graduate and rather than just making teas and coffees in the office, you would be in meetings um, with CEOs, finance directors, strategy directors of uh, major companies, although that was hugely seductive, very seductive, the fact that um, it's international and you're looking at um, international markets. And something probably more fundamental to me personally is that you could be involved in deals that were shaping the world of international commerce and business. And, you know, it's for someone who might be joining the military that gives them that buzz, you know, for someone else, I don't know, it might be um, doing sport. For me, it was like, wow, I could be in these kind of meetings, doing this kind of, being exposed to this kind of thinking and get paid quite well for it. There's no downside. But I did a number of internships, as you do. So I did an internship, two internships. I think I overdid the internships, to be honest, (laughs) (laughs) before doing it, and and then went into it. But then I think there was a part of me that never saw myself in the long term as an investment banker, but it was amazing experience at that age. And also, at some level, meant I didn't have to decide what I wanted to do. You could work in different sectors, the skills are broadly applicable, and it was normal for people to move out of the profession at different stages. So yeah, it helped me delay actually deciding what I want to do. And I mean, there's a part of me that feels I'm still doing that. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I but, think um, we, yeah. but, but it's, and, and that was it. It was, it was, an, it was an amazing ride. And you know, I joined... Goldman at the time, having worked at Morgan Stanley before and Barclays Capital in my internships. And it is a tremendous organization to work in, to be a part of, even if uh, quite frustrating in terms of the, the hours at the time. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, it clearly set you up for success. You, you, you worked there for a few years and then, then you ultimately left investment banking to go into in, uh, entrepreneurship. And I was reading that you successfully built a, a business to over 10 million turnover with 70 staff in a very short period of time. So you're clearly naturally a, a, an entrepreneur. So for our, our listeners' benefit, it'd be great to understand a bit about that startup journey that you went on and what for you were the, the biggest learnings, but also the kind of the biggest challenges that you, you had to overcome in that time. Well, yeah, so I worked in the, as I say, uh, the emerging acquisitions business at Goldman. I'd worked on a range of things, pharmaceuticals, chemicals, software, different types of mergers. And um, again, the question of what do you do next? came up after a while once said that that's not what I wanted to do with my life. And I think it was, there's a big difference in being an advisor and a decision maker. And I think I was attracted by the idea of being a decision maker and really having agency. And you have a lot of agency as a banker, but you're there to service your client's needs. And it's done at a very, very professional level, but that's completely different to making your own judgment calls and, backing yourself and you get it right sometimes you get it wrong another times and so i when i when i left Goldman, i you now supported by uh or got funded from some of the partners that i worked for and i teamed up with a friend of mine who was in consulting how to start a business now we really didn't know what we were doing <laughs> looking at <back. laughs> so, the first the first lesson is um you know so i'd gone from you know sort of these sort of uh environments where you know you're in sort of 
FTSE 100 board meetings to a business plan in a serviced office, you know, and a little bit of money in the bank. It's sort of complete polar opposite. A bit less glamorous, yeah. <laughs> where, 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 where I had been, and this was in the um, sort of logistics industry. And um, I don't want to overclaim it. So we did well for a while, and both founders left, sold a portion of our shares, got someone else involved, and then it didn't do so well. So kind of we built it, and then we thought, you know, we got quite excited, you know, and um, moved on to our subsequent businesses. So kind of the first... The first sort of and most important lesson looking back is kind of if you're, if, you're, if you're a founder, you've got to be all over it right to the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I think totally. it, that's, that's the, and it's the fact that it's all consuming and it has to be. There is no way around an entrepreneurial venture. You think about it on other weekends, you think about it when you're on holiday. It has to be all consuming in order for you to get the most success out of it. And it's kind of how we're all wired, but I think it's sort of when you begin to really hit big milestones and you know, getting big valuations, still really realizing that kind of, it requires that kind of focus. Yeah, totally. Uh, it sounds like a, a a very familiar story in the startup life. You know, the you know, things go really well. You have some challenging times, but you you learn from them, I guess. Ultimately, did you know sort of sort of during that period that you kind of wanted to move on? You know, because you ended up, I guess, the next part of your career was moving into government, which I'm, I know a lot of people listening will be interested to to hear about. So, how did you end up? at 10 Downing Street, like what was the reason for that coming about? And, and I know you ended up working for David Cameron. So it'd be great to understand a bit about that, that experience and what that was like. So, so the process for me is sort of, um, we, so we have this business in the logistics industry. It's doing well. We've moved on, made a bit, little bit of money, put someone else in charge. Then I invested in another business and did okay out of it. Um, not enough to uh, retire. And kind of while I'm doing this, one of the biggest things that changed for me, leaving investment banking was I had a bit more time. You know, I'd gone from working 60, 70 hours a week to working very hard, but I controlled my time. And because I controlled my time, I, I could follow things that I was interested in. And a friend of mine got me involved in a think tank. So I was, I was a treasurer of it. And the Boo Group was called at the time and I knew lots of people involved. Kind of while I was involved in it, I got to meet David Cameron and his team kind of before he became David Cameron and um, kind of was encouraged approach, approached and encouraged to run for parliament. But the real driver for me by this point was, it was how do you move the dial at scale? If you're someone who believes in change and you want to change things, what, what kind of where can you put yourself really to move the dial? And being an entrepreneur is one way of doing that. But also in politics, you can move the dial and change things that you believe uh, very passionately. And that was kind of the attraction uh, for me. And it was a new project. You know, it feels like an age now, but there was David Cameron, who's young, and he had some great ideas about not just the direction of the Conservative Party at the time, but the future of the country. And I didn't really expect to get elected that early. So the plan was to dip my toe in. And normally what happens certainly on the conservative side is, you know, people run for what is called the unwinnable seat first to yeah. cut their teeth. And then after that, you've proven yourself, you might get your, what they'll call the unlosable, a safe seat. 
and then you can build a career out of it. And um, I just did it in reverse, you know, so most people for the first time don't apply to any of the really plum seats. And I just thought I'll go for those ones because if I get one of them, then great. But if I don't, I've got lots of time, right? I'm yeah. 29 at this point. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, you know, I left Goldman at 24, 25, sort of I'm 29, I've got time. So I started applying for these seats that um, were, when I plumbed being a huge majority, conservative majority, so it's unlikely that whoever holds it will lose the seat in a general election. And why is that important? It's important because if you're in a seat that you can lose quite easily, it's very difficult to get promoted because the powers that be think you should be in your constituency making sure that you don't lose your seat rather than being a minister in Westminster. Mm. So it kind of makes a difference to what kind of political life you have in terms yeah. of what seat that you get. And um, I applied for the safe seats and I was getting to final rounds. And the way these things are conducted is you, a seat is advertised by the uh, party. You apply, you send your CV, there's a sift. And for a really good seat, you probably have about 200 people going for one place. And you have rounds of interviews that are conducted by the local party, but very different to the competency-based interviews that people would be used to for normal job interviews. This is a mixture of that and your political views and a whole range of other things that come into play. But I was getting into finals pretty much from the second one I applied to. So I thought, I'll just keep this going. And my theory is if it works out, great. If it doesn't work out, I'll come back four or five years time. (laughs) And in the end, I got selected for my seat 10 weeks before the general election. So East Surrey, and which was sort of the fifth safest conservative seat in the country at the time. So that obje- I'd achieved the objective that if I was going to get in, I only wanted to get in the seat that <laughs> was solid in that sense. And got elected and quite quickly afterwards got appointed to David Cameron's team in Downing Street initially as a political advisor and then formally as his parliamentary private secretary. So I was a trusted advisor to the prime minister, which was my first gig in politics. I had a desk in Downing Street outside the PM's office. I met with him and his core, sort of part of the, let's call it the kitchen cabinet for want of a better phrase. Uh, We met twice a day at 8.30 in the morning and at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, was there. The Cabinet Secretary was there. The Head of um, Communications was there. The Chief of Staff was there. The Chief Whip. And this is where kind of the business of the government got done Mm -hmm. in those meetings. Um, So what are the key issues? What are are the problems? What are the challenges? At that time, there was a coalition of the Liberal Democrats. So there was a lot around managing that coalition, which people thought wouldn't last six months, but actually ended up lasting a whole parliamentary term, uh, five years. So, and I was right in the heart of it. Wow, what an experience. I helped prepare David Cameron for Prime Minister's questions and any all his uh, statements that he did to the House of Commons. I was the link between Parliament and Downing Street. And um, you realise when you've got a job like that, you you make a lot of friends very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, I everybody's friend. Everybody wants yeah, to Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, what was that like? I mean, 
obviously uh, David Cameron, uh, Prime Minister, what a first gig for you, you know, in government. But what what was that like working with with someone like that, so high profile? And what was some of the sort of things you had to tackle and and overcome together? Well, I think the first thing is being comfortable in that kind of decision making environment. And so if we go back to kind of what I'd said earlier, whether it's being in the Oxford Union or kind of the professional services background I'd had, I was kind of comfortable in that environment. The second thing is don't assume that there is someone smarter than you in the room who's got the answer. If you've got something to say, just say it. And it took me a while to feel that comfortable enough to venture opinions. And kind of if you say it and it's completely stupid, okay, shut up for a few minutes, but don't let it stop you from offering a view in two days' time. And um, I think it's the intensity of the focus. Uh, Politics is very unforgiving as an environment. You know, one slip, whether it's a a sentence or, you know, how you treat someone or you you are in all over the newspaper. So it's a very relentless and intensive environment. And getting used to that level of decision-making and I think David Cameron himself put it very brilliantly. He said, um, being in politics at that level is like being in an asteroid shower. You know, it's, yeah. The issue is coming at you all the time and you're having to think yeah. quite quickly on your feet and find a way through them. But what I had that I thought was useful in terms of a way of working, having come from banking, is very structured and very execution-focused Mm. They're kind of they, these are the priorities this is what we need to deal with this is how we handle this manage this situation and all of that is helpful and so from my perspective i didn't find politics too alien to the world of business yeah. in that particular respect and i don't find some aspects of business too alien from the world of yeah. politics neither yeah, i think there is a lack of understanding you know sometimes you realize that you know, business people don't always understand politics and politics sometimes understands business even less. But I think the core skills of transacting business in an intense, fast-paced environment where you're dealing with people apply equally in high levels of business as they do Mm. at high levels of politics. Yeah. Out of interest, you clearly were well equipped for it uh, from your banking career and your startup career and you mentioned some of those transferable skills but what were the new skills you developed while you were an MP like what were the things that you picked up along the way that you maybe didn't have before very good question I think the 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 biggest one is I had no experience of um, dealing with the media and that is that is the big difference between business and politics that you've got a gallery out there judging every every moment and in my case, it wasn't I being judged, it was the prime minister being judged. And as one of the people who were in the prime minister's team, you felt that if he got it wrong, you've got it wrong by extension in not yeah. spotting something in advance. So that intensity of the media scrutiny and managing it and parsing every decision through the lens of not just is it a good decision on its own, but is it a good decision and how does it play on the me- in the media was a completely new well to me. The other thing that I find interesting now, whenever I read job specs, having been out of this environment for a long time, is the phrase must be comfortable with a matrix structure 
and manage in a context of ambiguity. And kind of, <laughs> you, see, you see that um, everywhere and in politics, everything is ambiguous. Yeah, everything yeah. is some kind of matrix structure because, yes, you might be based in Downing Street, but you don't control the senior official in the business department, right? Nor do you control uh, the CBI. <laughs> and so being managing in a very fluid environment and building sort of very, what I'll call complex stakeholder management mm-hmm. behind a decision is absolutely core. And certainly in my Downing Street role, those things were critical. As a minister, it was slightly different, okay? You, because you were in there advising the prime minister, and kind of the prime ministers are the apex of government, obviously, but you're a minister with your turf that you're responsible for. So if I take my last uh, ministerial position, Minister for Technology, Science, Universities and Innovation, and you've got executive control, right? There's about 8 billion uh, UK research and innovation budget, you've got 164 higher education institutions, you're strategically responsible for this. And there, you, there is more of an onus to be an executive, which is so it's slightly yeah. different. Yeah, interesting. I, it, it brings me on to my next question, actually, because uh, that last role you had in government is very relevant, very interesting for me, given that we're a, a search firm that works with high growth tech businesses. I, I would love to get your thoughts on, on how the government is doing when it comes to supporting tech and what your experience of that was. Um, and do you think there are areas, given this a challenge, albeit challenging period we're in, do you think there are areas that you'd want to see the government invest more? Because there is so much opportunity still in technology. And it's clearly a, an area you know well from your previous experiences. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the UK tech sector is one of the success stories of this country. And um, if you look at the venture capital inflows alone, I think it was 4.5 billion last year. So it's a huge success now, but it's also critical to the future of the country and our economy. And um, government definitely recognizes that. And without giving a whole lecture on it, I, I think there is a lot now in the ecosystem in terms of government support. So you've got things like R&D tax credits on the innovation side. You've got Innovate UK, which had a budget of about 300 million, probably about seven, eight years ago, now has a budget approaching a billion. And these are grants and soft loans for R&D intensive companies. And you've got the British Patient Capital Fund, which is, I think, a two, two and a half billion fund that is as fund of funds. And I think might do some co-investing as well. As part of the ecosystem, there's the Business Growth Fund, which looks at a number of businesses, not just the high tech sector. Obviously, EIS and SEIS are the angel side, not specifically tech-related, but Mm. very much there. And most recently, the Future Fund, which is the £500 million co-investment fund for high growth. And that's interesting because it's the first time that the government will be taking potentially actual stakes in tech companies because the instruments here are convertible loan notes. So the UK government could end up owning a stake in a number of our tech companies so when you look across the piece and look at all of these, that's, there is a lot going on in the landscape. And that's before you talk about some of the strategically important things around quantum, that say mm. the home office, and some of these other departments, the MOD, are involved with. But your question is kind of, where, where are the gaps? 
I still think that there is more that could be done in two particular areas. Late stage venture, I think there could be more around that. But specifically in the area of deep tech, there is underfunding between series B and D. So when a prototype has been uh, produced, you know, market has been established, and you have this kind of situation where you need new investment to be able to grow the management team to access the new markets. But then some of the larger VCs are like, well, so you've hit that, the revenue figures 10 million plus, we can't really invest in you. I think there is definitely a, a gap there. And if you speak to sort of investors like Parkwalk Advisors, you know, that's, that, that, those are the issues. And so there are gaps, but it's come a long way from 10 years ago in terms yeah. of the tech scene, both private sector investment, but also the ecosystem being stimulated with uh, taxpayer money. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. It must be interesting for you to, now you're outside of government, given you were at the, the thick of it for a number of years, given, and it, I'd be remiss not mentioning COVID-19, given that we're all at home at the moment. Whatever your political views, it must be very challenging and stressful to be in government at the moment, making these decisions on behalf of the country. How do you feel the government's dealt with this crisis? And, and if there are you know, business owners listening to this, which I'm sure there will be, do you have any sort of advice, having been in government, for those that are trying to navigate these difficult times? Well, <laughs> very, very. Uh, I'll choose my words carefully because I'm I'm not in the arena anymore. And when I was in the arena, I would always pop up on TV to give give my two pennies worth. I, I, I think it's sort of there. There is a kind of a an emerging consensus that we were as a country slow off the mark at the start of the crisis. But I'm not a healthcare expert, so I'll restrict my comments to the business side, I think on the business and economy side, the fairly scheme, I think, is sensible and incredibly helpful. The government is going to ask people to stay at home and not go to work. Then the government has got to think about, okay, how are those people going to live? So um, the price tag is hefty, but it was inevitable that that was going to happen once we were going to go into the lockdown uh, phase of things. And Fortunately, we have our own currency, so we can, we've got a lot more flexibility in terms of financing this. I think Siebel's, the Coronavirus Business Intervention and Loan Scheme, has evolved. You know, there's been some kind of yeah. evolution of it. I don't know and if anyone knows what's going on. Yeah. And um, I read very early on because I remember after the global financial crisis, I had done some policy work, which was adopted by the Treasury at the time, in terms of how you make sure that when you have these big interventions, that the money actually gets to small businesses that need it. You know, when you've got businesses that have got a runway of about six weeks, then they need the cash quickly. And there is always a tendency in government that because it deals with very big numbers, you know, a 300 billion scheme, that it, it likes to work with big institutions, you know, the large retail banks, for example, but when it comes to SME lending, the large retail banks are not as active as they were 15 years ago. So you need to sort of go over non-bank lenders and look at that. And I think there's been a lot done in that area. I think I, I see the new institutions approved every week. And so it's improving in terms of Siebel's uh, and obviously for investment grade companies, the Bank of England offers a number of interventions. I think rather than where we've gone wrong, I think looking to the future, the real debates next as far as business 
uh, is concerned is kind of the economy and how we plan our way out of lockdown to make ensure that we have as strong a recovery as possible. Now, that discussion may be going on within government, but certainly a lot of businesses that I talk to, that I advise, don't really have a sense of what the direction is. And I think we need a much more open discussion around what next. And, um, you know, I happen to know Rishi Sunak and he's, he's a pretty smart guy and the, the Treasury will be thinking about this. But I think businesses need clarity. They want yeah. to know. And um, even with relaxation of lockdown, what's going to trigger the different steps, by the way. I think that is where I think there is a, still, from the public's point of view, a lot of work to be done. As I said, I'm not an expert on the healthcare side, so I'm not going to comment on that. Fair enough. Thank you. And I think yeah, for someone that's been so close to the government uh, over the years, it, it, I th- think people listening will, will appreciate your views on that. Wanted to talk a little bit about leadership. We're getting towards the end of our conversation, uh, but you've worked with very high profile leaders, David Cameron being probably the most famous. What, in your opinion, makes a great leader? And what, what you know, for any of these aspiring leaders or business owners out there, what are your main takeaways from your experience thus far of working with people like that? Well, I mean, from what I've seen so far, and I'm still learning it for myself, I think what distinguishes, and this is partly people I've observed at close hand, like David Cameron, and people who haven't done as well, and people who kind of I've read about. And I think what distinguishes leaders is David Cameron is not afraid in a meeting with people he trust to say he's not sure. What he focused on was getting the best people together. And he always had this phrase, you know, I want my best players on the pitch. And never saw himself as the one who had to provide and think of every answer. He's willing to delegate, yeah. And and marshal the best people together. I think that is um, a distinguishing feature. Another distinguishing feature is clarity of purpose, but at the same time, flexibility. Because the world changes around you very quickly and you've got to change. And and most of the good leaders I've seen, not just in politics and business, do have that sense of this where I'm going. But if I need to change tactics, I'll change very quickly rather than being fixated on a position. But I also say what when we talk about leadership, we often talk about, let's say, hard skills, goal setting, driving, managing people, all of being a winner. But one of the things I've observed that I rate personally quite highly are sometimes the human qualities that make people good leaders, you know, whether it's empathy and those things matter, especially at a time like this. You know, um, you know you, 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 you've got a business and you kind of think we don't need the office anymore. You know, we're going to get rid of it because we can all work from home. Right. And you've got quite a nice home, but most of your staff are probably working from half a bedroom yeah, <laughs> and it doesn't yeah. work for them. So kind of, I think empathy is incredibly important, but human qualities like that are often not talked about when we Mm. talk about leadership and we talk about the hard qualities. The ability to share credit, I think is important, you know, um, Mm. because I think people, if you empower people and they get credit for what they do, they even do more than you ask them to do to start with. Yeah, I completely agree. um, I, I think, and I think is a hallmark of a confident leader when they are able to do that. And in in this current environment, finally, and what I've seen is just the ability to see around the corner more Mm. than I think when David Cameron was at his best, 
is when he anticipated problems that even people around him mm. hadn't spotted. Yeah. Some of those things you mentioned, I think really we see in our, our clients that, you know, that the top leaders amongst them are the ones that are able to attract and retain a diverse group of talented individuals, you know, get them aligned to a common goal and a vision, you know, but also have the, you know, just that humble, collaborative, people-focused approach, which I love. The human touch, you know, it just means that you're so much more likely to get people bought into your vision and, and come on the journey with you. So completely agree. Last question before we get into our final quick fire wrap up questions. There will be people listening, I'm sure, that want to follow in your footsteps, emulate the sort of career you've had uh, potentially in, in politics. What's your advice for anyone that's listening to this that aspires to to make that move? Well, I mean, the, the advice I'll give is the same advice you know you would give to a budding entrepreneur, which is follow your conviction that it's never too early to get involved. And... Um, there are big, big questions being asked now, you know, uh, post-COVID-19. For example, how are we going to pay for the scale of the interventions? And, you know, for people in the tech space, how does government become tech-savvy and deliver for its citizens and become more responsive? Uh, there's so many big questions and there is a big need for change that I feel that if you do have the conviction it's up to you to follow it through because if you don't follow it through, then don't blame someone else who does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even if they get enough. it wrong. Yeah. So if you have the, if you have the conviction, go for it. And uh, it's politics needs talent. And that all of that said, it's, we all know the scrutiny is intense and all of that, but you can do some good. And I had 10 years, you know, we we're fortunately my party at the time was in, government for most of, of, of that time and I got to be a minister and would, we didn't go into it, got to really affect change in the areas that I cared about. And I look back and I think, okay, I've done my bit and I'm proud and it's a privilege that I had that opportunity, but also that I took it. Mm, nah, that's, that's great advice. And I, I hope that will inspire those listening that, that, that want to go into politics to do so. Because I think we, we definitely, as you said, need talented people. Um, and I think it really helps having people like yourself that have worked in business and entrepreneurship before that make that move. It would be ridiculous if I didn't ask you about mentorship, Sam. So I always ask um, our 40 minute mentors if they have mentors themselves. So do you have a mentor? Have you had mentors over the years? Oh, I've got all sorts. I've, got, I've, I've had different mentors at different stages of my life, whether they're teachers, whether it's um, Michael Hesseltine, who is an entrepreneur and a politician who mentored me in my early days in politics. In fact, he wrote my reference. And, uh, but I, I, kind of take, I tend to take these things even further. So it's not just mentors. It's your, your, I, I, what I say to my friends, your pit crew, you know, kind of your yeah, yeah. unchosen people who you go to, for different things to think through issues because nobody has all the answers. And so I don't only have mentors. I have a pit crew who I Brilliant. work with and at different stages of my life have been very helpful. I love that. That's great. Yeah, that's great. I've always said that mentorship comes in, in many different forms. And I think there's something to be said for having them for different areas of your life. Great. And, and Sam, we, we haven't really touched upon the future. So what, what does the next 12 months, what does the next five years look like for, for you now that you've kind of moved away from politics? Well, I think, uh, as I said, I think I've done my bit as far as politics is concerned. And um, 
The next step is definitely going to be um, something in tech, working through a few ideas on the, in the tech space. And um, I'll just say, watch this space. Awesome. Now we're excited. Uh, I think everyone at JBM will be uh, rooting for you and excited to see where things go from here. Um, and, and our final question, Sam, for any listeners that are thinking about making a career move right now, uh, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? Well, I think it's, it's easy to be disheartened now because at one level, most people in good jobs are not leaving <laughs> because of the economic environment and it, we're, we're going into a recession. And at another level, companies are very, very focused on the day-to-day -day and dealing with the impact of COVID-19 and in some cases, whether their businesses will survive, how they prioritize, how they align their teams to deal with this huge emergency. So if you are looking now, it's easy to be despondent. But I also think that we are at a time of big change and it's an inflection point for so many industries and uh, there is going to be a lot of movement. Yeah. Some people are going to reevaluate their lives, how they want to work. Some people are going to choose to move on and retire. Companies are going to restructure in different directions. So this is, I see this ultimately as a time of great opportunity. And so, but as with everything in life, be persistent and look for the opportunity and seize it. Great advice. On that positive note, Sam, we will leave it there. Thank you for being such a great 40-minute mentor and we wish you all the very best uh, for the year ahead. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Sam. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40-minute mentor and if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.